ready Mike's to go. Doing this. Okay, great. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Vancouver Real. I am your host today, Mike Zaremba. Andy couldn't join me because we're doing the Skype podcast today. And uh, I'm really, really excited for this one to get started. Um, obviously, we are sponsored by Floathouse. Floathouse.com is our website. So use the promo code Vancouver Real to save 20% off a single float. And, um, you know, without further ado, I'm going to dive right into our episode today. And joining me as uh, is it's always really exciting <laughs> when I believe I get to sit down with somebody who I can say for certain is going to have a statue made of them. And I know that's probably. <laughs> Sorry so, for laughing. <laughs> no, I get a little nervous, but it's good because I'm like, man, this guy's totally going to have a statue. If I'm on that board of directors, I am definitely putting up a statue of you, uh, Mr. Doblin. So Rick Doblin joins us today. He is the founder and the um, executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, it's founded in 1986. Um, yeah. Basically, it, MAPS, just in a nutshell, is a nonprofit research organization established in 86, as I mentioned, and um, is to help develop legal context for the beneficial uses of psychedelics and marijuana, primarily as prescription medicines, but also for personal growth for otherwise healthy people. And eventually to become a legally licensed psychedelic therapist is what your ultimate goal is. So you're taking yes. a very noble road um, for your career <laughs> path. And, um, you know, well, first of all, welcome to Vancouver Real, Rick. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, it is a long career path. Um, I started on this when I was 18. I'm uh, in 1972. I'm now 63. Um, I think... Uh, we're on track for MDMA to become a prescription medicine for PTSD by 2021. So may maybe by the time I'm um, 67 or so, I'll be able to start my real career. <laughs> that's, you know what? I mean, that's talking like when you have a bird's eye view and a big picture perspective, like that's, I don't think you can get bigger than that. So that's, yeah. that's pretty incredible though. I mean, um, I've been kind of following your work and MAPS work for, for several years now, personally, I've seen you on probably every single podcast that um, <laughs> I, I can find you on. Um, and I'm going to kind of get into an update of MAPS on a cr cross-sectional view of where we're at yeah. today. But first, just for the people who may be joining us who haven't heard of MAPS, haven't heard of you, don't know what we're talking about, can you kind of, in your words, just break down what MAPS is, as I gave a brief description, but from your point of view and... Um, and why you started it, and, and then we'll kind of get into where we're at today. Okay. Um, MAPS is essentially a nonprofit pharmaceutical company focused on developing psychedelics and marijuana into medicines through charitable donations. Um, we pick controversial drugs that are off patent, that are in the public domain, that the pharmaceutical companies aren't interested in, that governments are a little bit nervous about funding research into otherwise uh, illegal drugs. And so MAPS was um, started, as I said, in 86. I learned about MDMA in 82 when it was still legal. And then in 84, I got involved with the uh, underground therapy community trying to protect the legal status of MDMA. And we had a lawsuit against the DEA that I helped initiate, and we won the lawsuit. It was an administrative law judge hearing. The judge said MDMA should be Schedule Three available to the therapist. The head of the DEA rejected that recommendation. Um, we sued and won a couple times in the appeals courts. Eventually, DEA won, and that's where I realized the only way to bring this through a culture that was uh, filled with fear um, in a propaganda kind of manner to support prohibition, that the only way would be through science, through medicine, through healing, through the FDA. 
Yeah, so you realized pretty quickly that that was the only route you could see, no matter how long that took, was the one that would probably work versus like all the political activism that maybe you saw back in the hippie movement and, and that you know, part of the 60s. You're just like, okay, if we want to try to do this, this is the route. Yeah, there, there was a backlash to that political activity of the 60s, which resulted not just in the criminalization of these drugs, but in the wiping out of above-ground scientific research for several decades. It was kind of very extreme reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just as a adding to, to the people that are just tuning in, um, I sort of have two trainings. One is with Dr. Stanislav Grof, the world's leading LSD researcher, who's developed an approach called holotropic breathwork through hyperventilation to induce non-ordinary states of consciousness, and very similar to the approach with psychedelics. So on the one hand, I've trained with Stan, and then on the other hand, I've gone to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and have master's and PhD from there in public policy focused on regulation of the medical use of Schedule One drugs, particularly psychedelics and marijuana. So on the one hand, training for sort of individual psychotherapy, and then on the other hand, training for sick public policies yeah. and sort of cultural uh, psychotherapy. Um, in terms of uh, that part, the public policy part, um, did you like? Did you know that? Sorry, was that did that come after you started like working with maps? Like, did you like? Okay, I need to prepare myself for this kind of journey. Um, is that where you were? Ah. Okay, so um, actually, um, so starting in, in 72, when I was 18, decided to focus on becoming psychedelic psychotherapy. Yeah. And so basically from there until um, 87, I was training as a therapist. Um, I was involved starting with 84 with a little bit of the politics, um, but, you know, and then started MAPS in 86. But in 87 is when I finally graduated college, and I tried to get into clinical psych PhD programs mm-hmm. to learn how to do psychotherapy outcome research. But this was before the doors had opened up again to psychedelic research. And so no schools were willing to let me in. Right. And that's, that's where I um, was sort of blocked. And I came home one day. I remember exactly where I was. I smoked some marijuana. And I tried to think about this dilemma that I'd been 16 years going for one track you know, psychedelic psychotherapy and psychotherapy research, but the doors were closed. And during this uh, broader view that marijuana can give you, I realized that I was wanting too much too soon. And I was wanting to do the science, but the politics were in the way. Hmm. And so I figured I better study the politics. So that's where the switch. So in 88 is when I started at the Kennedy School studying the politics. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Two, two years after MAPS had started. Right. Okay. And so um, I want to kind of ask you, um, kind of moving forward from like MAPS of then to where we're at now, but before we get to like the most contemporary view, can you kind of maybe highlight a couple of the, the most, like maybe two or three, and you can elaborate as you will on them, uh, the most major accomplishments that you feel have been um, existed so far by MAPS and in, in the progress you've gone through? Okay. Um, well, I'd say that the um, crucial one was in 1992. So from um, 1986, where I started MAPS, into the late um, 80s, we had five different protocols that were submitted to the FDA from different universities, Harvard, UC San Francisco, University of New Mexico, Wayne State, all of which were rejected by the FDA. And 
then once I was at the Kennedy School, I got to be what's called a presidential management intern or a presidential management fellowship for people that want careers in the federal governments. And I tried to get a job at the FDA. Um, the DEA didn't want me there because it was the part of the FDA that deals with Schedule One drugs. So ultimately, I didn't get that. But um, I learned that the group of people at the FDA that regulated psychedelics switched in 1990. And so then we submitted a protocol for MDMA for cancer patients with anxiety. And the FDA decided that they needed to have a special advisory committee meeting to decide whether really they wanted to resume psychedelic research. So in 1992, there was a two-day meeting of the National Institute on Drug Abuse um, focused on their animal researchers with psychedelics, and then the crucial meeting with the FDA. And during that meeting, the FDA decided, and the advisory committee ratified with the DEA, the drug czar, NIDA, all people there, that they would open the door to psychedelic research and research with marijuana, but they would hold us to the exact same standards that they hold big pharma. Okay. Hmm. And so that was the crucial... Um, official word that this research was going to be accepted. And when FDA and DEA, I mean, when DEA, NIDA, and the drug czar's office heard that this would, that we would be held to the same standards as big pharma, they were like, nothing's going to come out the other end. So they agreed to that. Hmm. So that was the crucial, really. And so that's been 25 years ago. And uh, we can, uh, can I tap into that one for a sec? Yeah. Uh, was that, cause that, that's the timing I believe. And I've read that, you know, the DM, DMT, the spirit molecule with Dr. Rick Straussman, that was right around that time when he kind of got approved. Like, is that part of that approval process? Was he involved with that at all? Well, he was. He got approved in 1990. Oh, okay. And his his study was DMT for um, looking at it in terms of schizophrenia. Okay. Um, sort of maybe DMT causes schizophrenia. So it was kind of a scientific mechanism of action study, in a way looking at risks of DMT. Hmm. But that was the first psychedelic research approved by this group. Okay. But then when we came in with a treatment study saying that we want to develop MDMA into a medicine and we want to treat cancer patients with anxiety at the time, then they said, we need to really have this advisory committee meeting okay. to decide if we're going to open the door to drug development research. And that wow. was what happened in 1992. What, what a time. Like what, I mean, I wonder if at that time they knew, I mean, ultimately, <laughs> let's look at like 20 years from now even, what Pandora's box that decision might have done, huh? Yeah. I think they did know that um, research should open and that science should not be blocked by politics and by drug war ideology. So right. I, I don't know that they thought we'd ever get to this point where we're about to launch phase three studies and we have a realistic possibility of making MDMA into a medicine, a prescription medicine. But, but they were sympathetic to letting this move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, at, because the FDA is about treating illnesses, responding to human needs. They're not part of the drug war directly right and so they, they resisted different efforts on the part of nida to block our marijuana research or not to approve mdma research they even got calls from members of congress once they approved our first mdma study for ptsd telling them to revoke approval which they rejected so i think the fda is really uh, the hero here in terms of you know government regulators and saying science over politics wow so that that was crucial in 1990 um the other milestones um, took place uh, starting in 2000, 2001, where we applied for MDMA for PTSD research, and the FDA said yes. So yeah. that was really crucial, this idea that now 
we're negotiating on moving forward with trying to see with patient populations. Gotcha. And, and then the, the other milestone um, really is more recent. Um, November 29th, 2016 is when we had what's called the end of phase two meeting with FDA. Okay. And at, at that meeting, they said, yes, your phase two data is sufficient. You've demonstrated preliminary evidence of efficacy. You've demonstrated acceptable safety. You've done a lot of different studies on which populations, which doses, what measures, how you're going to conduct the studies. And they said, yes, you can go to uh, phase three. And since then, we've been engaged in a roughly six-month process, which is called special protocol assessment on negotiating on the design of phase three. And we had a meeting on May 11th. We came to agreement on the designs um, on June 12th, just um, a few days ago. We submitted the revised protocol to FDA. And so the two big milestones coming up, which I'd say are the most important in all of MAPS's history, is going to be um, near the end of July, we should hear from FDA on whether we've got full agreement on the phase three designs. And we've also been encouraged to apply for what's called breakthrough therapy designation. So that's for drugs that are for serious or life-threatening illness, for people who have failed to obtain relief on other drugs. And if your drug shows like it could be an advance, a breakthrough, FDA will grant breakthrough therapy designation, and then that becomes a priority for them to review it as quickly as possible and to help you as much as possible in the design. So we're hoping that by, um, actually today is when we're submitting the application um, to FDA, and they have 60 days. So we're hoping by, um, you know, August 21 or so, we'll have heard from FDA, and those will be the crucial milestones. Wow, and I can only imagine, like, an application of this nature isn't just, like, a few pages that you, you, <laughs> you submit on. Like, I mean, this is pretty crazy in depth. You have a gigantic team with you now in the MAPS organization, yeah. and, um, you know, you're collecting funding uh, from from the public, basically, and special donors, and it's all, you know, non-for-profit. And, I mean, it's just yeah. such an, a, a crazy... I, I don't know the whole the whole story of it is insane. It's it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so what's yeah, it's what? A, what's it's it? a big challenge for sure. Well, and what's it like for you personally? Like, on a, I mean, on a day to day, do you kind of just focus on the day? Do you ever like take you know take that puff and then step back and <laughs> like what, what's it kind of like going through this process for you? Well, I, I'll actually say that I've taken that puff and then edited a lot of our documents going into the FDA. Wow. Okay. So, so I find that that marijuana is really good for editing. Mm, interesting. You know, it's it's um in some ways it can be good for writing, but in particular, I think it's very good for editing. Right. Uh, sort of to see what's not there, or mm -hmm. just to see the impressions. So, right. Yeah. Occasionally, I do take a step back, but then I'm a little bit wary about celebrating too soon. Totally. So, you know, we we have made progress, but. You know, we need to um, raise around $25 million for phase three. We've got about um, $11 million so far. Okay. So there's an awful lot of work to be done. But um, it is very, very satisfying to see because there's a lot of people that work on social change that never live to see the actual fruits of their efforts. So if you want to think about abolitionists, you know, in the 1700s or the early 1800s, you know, died before uh, the Civil War. There's, there's right. just a lot of life, a lot of social justice causes that are, take many, many generations. Right. And so I, I just feel so fortunate that I was, you know, born at a time where I did see the sort of psychedelic 
60s. I saw the backlash, and then I was able to devote myself to uh, sort of bringing psychedelics back, and now, um, to a large extent, they are back in research, and if we can make the next step to having them back as, or back that, not so much back, but there for the first time as legal prescription medicines, um, just in one lifetime, one span of a lifetime, that, that'd be fantastic. Totally, yeah, and when you're, when you're speaking about, like, you're, you're, you're close, but it's not there yet. I heard you say a really cool quote. Uh, you quoted Shakespeare. Can you say that for me again? Oh, yeah. I'm going butcher to butcher it. Oh, good. Yeah, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. Right. So, you know, you've picked up the cup. You think you've got it. There's nothing more can go wrong. and Or, you know, you've spilled all this hot, hot coffee on your lap or something. That's right. So, and I think having that, that humility, that approach, and that just that, that care and uh, acknowledgement of the fragility of it all and like and, and, and the responsibility of the work that's been done to date um, you know I mean that's just a healthy approach so I mean you know keeping yeah, that perspective and a, and a lot of times the opposition doesn't really mobilize until they really think you're about to make progress mm. so I, I think we've been discounted people have said you know what's a little nonprofit going to be able to do mm-hmm. when we hear from big pharma it takes a billion dollars to make a medicine right. or more so how can you ever do it so uh, there, there could be more opposition but we are doing very very well in um, meeting therapists that are the experts on PTSD research all over the world and introducing MDMA research to them getting their interest we're funding studies with leading therapists who work for the veterans administration Mm -hmm. so um i I actually don't see where a backlash would come from wow Uh, because sometimes you know it comes from where you don't think it's going to come from but from at least like the rise of the parents movements or the um that that's sort of what was in the late 70s that was the backlash against legalization of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so much compassion for veterans and others with PTSD, for women who have been suffering rape and childhood sexual abuse, that we have a sympathetic patient population. We have a very highly easily regulated treatment because what we're saying is in contrast to medical marijuana, which is a drug that pe- people... Um, are prescribed and then do at home. MDMA is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. It's only done under supervision of therapists. Mm, right. So it's never never going to be a take-home drug. So it's very easily to regulate it. It's not going to get out of control the way opiates have got out of control. And so I, I just don't see... And I think also that the narrative that came from the 60s is that these drugs are going to turn people into social dropouts, you know, drop to an intern and drop out, counterculture rebels. There are now, you know, the wealthiest company in the world, Apple, was founded by Steve Jobs, who spent a lot of time, uh, you know, doing LSD. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of aging baby boomers who've made a lot of important contributions and are doing fine. So, and have not dropped out of society. So the idea that this is, um, the leading edge of a counterculture revolution, I think, is wrong. Um, and that's where there was a lot of opposition. But I do think that we're at the leading edge of consciousness change and that that will not so much be a revolution as evolution. Yeah. And that it, it will help people to um, be less frightened of people that are different from them, be more sympathetic with environmental uh, developments. Um, so, I, And again, it, this is sort of getting us... Um, so a bigger picture, too, is we're talking about medicalizing 
um, psychedelics. But I think that we need to go beyond that to end prohibition so that people can use them who don't necessarily have a diagnosis for personal growth, for spirituality. And, you know, I'm tracking what's going on in Canada. We're so excited to see legalization of marijuana moving forward. Mm -hmm. But um, it's also moving forward in the U.S. And what we see is that medicalization for a decade or more, sometimes 20 years, builds a different kind of uh, public education program, that people have a more accurate sense of risks and benefits than they do from what we hear from the anti-drug uh, organizations that talk about these drugs are only risky, no benefits. So yeah. medicalization changes people's attitudes and will lead to legalization. So we're assuming medicalization of psychedelics, uh, of MDMA and other groups with psilocybin in 2021, then maybe another decade, uh, so psychedelic clinics will be spread uh, throughout uh, North America and Europe. And so maybe by 2031, there'll be more than 1,000 psychedelic clinics. And then maybe by 2035, we'll have legalization. Right. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, we, my brother and I, we were supporting the MAPS Canada um, crowdfunding campaign that just wrapped yeah. up, I yeah. think, a month or so ago. And it was a success, raised $50,000. Oh, it was fantastic, yeah. yeah towards, uh, and, 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 yeah. and kind of piggybacking on that idea of like, uh, one of the big things about it for, for Mark Hayden, who's the, the chair of MAPS Canada up here we've been working closely with, is, is just also bringing more education and bringing it to light within Canada. That was like one of our big goals for this campaign was like, let's bring, let's bring some light on this. Let's bring the spotlight down to because Vancouver is um, one of the, the cities that's going to be hosting some of these studies. So let's yeah. bring some attraction. So as a secondary note to the fundraising, a secondary um, byproduct, we wanted to bring just more awareness, like use the platforms of social media, get it out there and, um, you know, start to create this educational process here. Yeah, thank you for, my, for that, because this public education is crucial, because it was fear of the public that supported the crackdown. Right. You know, not all of it was reasonable, because it was based on a lot of misinformation, but, you know, that when we talk about avoiding the backlash, it's efforts like this podcast, it's like the fundraising campaign, it's to what extent can we educate the public in a way where it's early, it's not like, oh, now the drug is going to be approved, and then they freak out, so it's along the whole way so that um, people are sort of prepared. And we will have uh, phase three sites in Toronto, well, excuse me, in um, Montreal, okay. and also in Vancouver. And in Toronto, we're working with researchers at Ryerson University, okay. and they're blending MDMA with existing non-drug psychotherapies. Um, one is called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, okay. which conjoint is couples therapy. So it's a therapy that was developed where one member of the couple has PTSD, but it affects the relationship. And so we have permission to blend uh, MDMA with this therapy, and we're giving both members of the couple MDMA. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. And then they also have done work um, in Toronto with what's called cognitive processing therapy. Okay. And so they'll be um, coming later, probably next year sometime, to blend MDMA with cognitive processing therapy. And so we have our own method, mm -hmm. uh, which we think is customized for MDMA and ideal for the treatment of PTSD. But we're very much open to the idea that all these people that have been working in the field of PTSD and developing these non-drug psychotherapies, they've got a lot of good insights as well. And their different treatment approaches may very well be enhanced by MDMA 
it's uh, something that can be used in multiple different contexts, and that's where we're uh, open to exploring. That's it. that's excellent. I, I haven't heard that part of it yet. Well, in terms of like the different forms of, uh, of therapies that are being yeah. um, combined with the MDMA, so that's so exciting. So actually, maybe can we dive in a little bit because I've heard you talk um, in depth about these um, you know psychotherapy MDMA sessions that are happening, and kind of just maybe for people who are still kind of like what we're using drugs to heal people. Um, can we talk about What's happening with MDMA for someone with PTSD um, that allows them to get this sort of um, amplified therapeutic effect versus just, say, psychotherapy on its own or other treatments? Because the cool thing I love about these studies is that you're actually targeting patient populations that are chronically treatment-resistant PTSD. So it's not just like any old PTSD. It's the hard stuff. So um, so can you talk about that? Just what's happening with MDMA in these sessions and, and that stuff? Yeah, yeah, great question. And um, if you were to design a drug for PTSD, um, MDMA would be about ideal. So what happens with PTSD is that people get emotionally stuck, in a way, on reacting to a trauma. And the trauma never really goes away, but it never really gets processed fully either. So it's always about to be happening. And one of the things that happens is that people's brains with PTSD are changing. And the amygdala, the fear processing part of the brain, has more activity in PTSD patients than in others. And in the frontal cortex, where we put things in context, there's less activity. So in a sense, you could say people are more emotionally reactive and less rational. Gotcha. So what MDMA does is it reduces activity in the amygdala, so people don't respond as much with fear, and it increases activity in the frontal cortex. And uh, there's also problems with PTSD patients with the hypothalamus where memories are stored. Mm. So they can so th- these memories are never really fully processed. Mm. So um, MDMA stimulates serotonin, uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, but with PTSD, people are feeling isolated, they lack trust, um, they don't have good human connections, and the key to therapy, no matter what school of therapy it is, it's called the therapeutic alliance. Okay. That's the most important predictor of therapeutic outcomes, is a strong therapeutic alliance. So MDMA also stimulates um, hormones of oxytocin and prolactin. And these are the hormones of of bonding, of nurturing, nursing mothers. And that helps give people this sense of connection, emotional connection. It builds with the therapist. So MDMA can build this therapeutic alliance, and it can make it so that the trauma that people need to reprocess is less fearful because they're aware that they're in a safe, trusting place that they're processing trauma as if it was um, being processed for the first time. Because a lot of times when the trauma is happening, people right. kind of freeze their emotions so they can deal with the situation. Right. Or it's too, too scary. And so it never gets fully processed. So different kinds of therapy. Sometimes under MDMA, people will just shake for hours or just let out the fear that's been sort of wrapped in their body. Hmm. Or other times they'll have ideas that help them sort out 
And so they're able to face this experience. They're first off able to experience it where it's previously been too frightening and they're able to place it in the past okay. and then learn from it. And then what we think is going on is what's called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. And what that means is that every time that we um, remember something, it used to be thought that memory was like going to a, a bookshelf and taking down the book and then there's your memory and then you stick the book back up on the shelf. Right. But, but it's not like that. So memory is distributed throughout the brain. Um, here will be your smell memory associated with an event, and here's your emotional tone, and then here's your cognitive, you know, what actually happened. It, it, so this memory, when you remember something, it sort of gets pulled together, and then you have to reconsolidate the memory. And that helps explain a little bit how people's memories can change over time. Hmm. You're sort of rewriting, you're reprinting the book, rewriting the book every time you remember something. Right. So what happens is when you remember something that's frightening, so it's you have an event and it's tagged with this emotion of fear, then every time a PTSD person remembers that, they've got the fear and they've got the event. Hmm. But under MDMA or other therapies where you feel safe, you remember the event, but you're feeling safe and it's at a distance in the past so when you reconsolidate the memory the emotional tone is switched to the tone from when you most recently remembered it okay. so then when you remember it at a later time you pull up what happened in your brain but the emotional tone is no longer the fear it's that that you've processed it it's in the past you know you can be sad you can grieve for it but it's not as if it's still happening Amazing. That's the key to the therapy. Cool. No, that's so interesting. And I'm really happy you brought up that one point about memory reconsolidation because I was listening to you on Duncan Trussell's podcast maybe uh, a year yeah. or so ago. And you brought yeah. that up. There's an animal study that I forget where they're doing that study. And I was going to ask you this time, have they got any results? They're, trying to look, they're actually trying to look at the exploration, oh, sorry, the, uh, the mechanism of memory reconsolidation. Do you have any updates on that study? Um, and maybe yeah, there there was some studies being done in Colorado that we funded, and then also at Rockefeller University um, in New York, and then also at Emory University in Atlanta. Okay, and so it, it's becoming clearer that MDMA does um, first off reduce fear extinction. So sometimes what that means in animal models is that. You'll have a cage, and you'll have one part of the floor that's electrified. Mm. And a rat goes on that little part of it and gets a little bit of a shock. And so, therefore, they won't go back to that spot. They sort of associate that spot with this shock. With this shock. And then they'll study how long does it take when they no longer do the shocking for the rat to, to, or the mouse to get back to that spot. Right. And so they show that when they give these animals MDMA, they're more willing to test that out again. Okay. So that's part of this fear extinction. And then the memory reconsolidation is um, sort of, I would say, the height of uh, modern neuroscience. Hmm. So it's very interesting, but it's very preliminary, which is how does the brain actually um, switch memories? How do they start and store new memories? And then also you have certain pathways in your brain. As I described with PTSD, you have a hyperactive amygdala those kind of path, certain kind of pathways are replaced by other pathways. And so there's actually diminished activity over time in certain brain centers as 
people heal from PTSD. And so they're trying also to figure that out in the animals and how do you tell, you know, when there's new neurons being built or old, old neurons sort of dying off. It's, it's very, very complicated. So I think the, um, you know, it could be another five, 10 years before we really understand yeah. what's going on with fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. But fortunately for Health Canada and for the FDA, um, you don't have to figure out how it works. You right. just prove safety and efficacy and then you can get it approved. Yeah, that's great. So that, that sort of more depth of neuroscience will come further. And I know actually when you were talking there, it reminded me of, um, I'm not sure if you remember or if you were around for Dr. Justin Feinstein's uh, lectures last year at the Float Conference. Um, he's the, the main kind of American uh, float researcher in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. And they have the fMRI machine basically right in the float tank lab. And so they will transfer people right to that. I think it's anxiety people who also, I believe anxiety is obviously, uh, there's a lot of cross-symptomology with anxiety and PTSD. And they have yeah. this hyperactive amygdala yeah, as well. And they're showing that uh, same thing, like the float environment, the float experience is, is also supporting this uh, remodulating of the amygdala um, in, in these people. And they're getting those MRI uh, results right away. And it's, I mean, I think he was referencing how it's, this stuff is very new neuroscience. Like regardless of the float research, this is like we're learning stuff yeah. about the brain here, which is really, really cool. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, neuroscience is really opening up. But just before we go any further, I just want to say um, how important float tanks have been to me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. To, well, I was going to get into that because I know you do have a personal history <laughs> okay. with them. But, yeah, let's dive in. Um, please share what you oh. can. Okay. Well, when I first started uh, tripping in 1971 and um, uh, 1972, um, this was before I was aware of the psychedelic research by Stan Groff. I was aware of the work by John Lilly. Mm -hmm. I'd read a book, um, Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer. It was advertised in the Whole Earth Catalog. And so I ordered a copy, and it turned out that it was uh, you know, John Lilly um, doing LSD inside a float environment yeah. and then describing how the brain works um, in computer terms. It was fantastic. And so friends and I tried to create um, sensory deprivation environments, Eventually, we built our own tanks. Um, I had a tank in my house. I lived with a tank for years. I don't have one now, but, but um, I miss it. Yeah. And so I've, I've spent some uh, very productive times inside the tanks, um, some on marijuana, some on LSD, um, some, you know, just normal. Yeah. But um, I, I just feel like there's um, a kind of inner focus that when you're doing psychedelic psychotherapy, you know, we have people with their eyes closed, uh, often listening to music to get sort of deep into their inner psyche. And you can do a lot of that exact same work in a flotation tank. Mm. And so I think the, um, you know, the future psychedelic clinics will have um, massage and float tanks as well as rooms for psychedelic psychotherapy. Wow, very cool. I love that prediction. I think, I think you're right. I mean, it's, I think, you know, any sensory reduction, because there's so much of our brain that is uh, used to process the senses, especially vision. Like, our vision is amazing as a human being. Like, we have yeah. so much color, so much acuity. Like, it's, in, it's incredible. And that takes, but that takes a lot of, like, processing power. So when you shut yeah. that down in the tank or with the blindfold, it takes so much away. And then, 
you know, you still have that processing power, but now it can start to start to kind of go inside a little bit. Right. And, and same with sound and, and, and things like that. So, um, I mean, and obviously, you know, sensory reduction has been a part of different spiritual practices and cultures for a long time, going into caves or building temples yeah. and pyramids or, or black or sweat lodges, you know, like yeah. we discovered this a lot earlier in our, in our existence that uh, sensory reduction can turn you into that inward path on that kind of a spiritual experience, perhaps. Um, and now the float tanks is like a super refined form of that. That is, you know, yeah, been exploding in popularity the last five years. Yeah. You can understand now that people are on their cell phones all the time and there's not enough quiet time that the appeal of the flotation tanks has been increasing. So that the amazing to me is how many, um, float centers there are, how much people really need and appreciate that space. Um, I just did a sound healing. I was just in Israel and um, actually, there's some Israelis and Palestinians that are doing ayahuasca together. And wow. there's so, you know, there is some hope for the future, although it's really, really, you know, early stages. But um, in the sound healing, um, I was initially instructed to sort of focus on my heartbeat. And that brought me back to the tank, because one of the things in the flow tanks is that you really can hear your heart and get a That's much right. better sense of it. And the blood rushing through your brain and your ears, it's... It's amazing to sort of tune into the internal sounds of your body. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Um, actually, my uh, partner is pregnant, and um, that's something that uh, a lot of uh, people are finding really interesting is like this prenatal bonding experience, and they're able to literally hear their baby's heartbeat inside wow. the flow tank, um, which I know I can only imagine how cool that would be, but... Uh, you know, I just think like, um, you know, as more people, like, it's funny too. Like, I mean, there's obviously fear around psychedelics and fear around all that kind of stuff. But the same thing, we have these major, major challenges of fear of going into the float tank. So that's a huge part of our, I think, a way I can relate to what you guys are going through is this educational process of like yeah. debunking the myths, dispelling all this, you know, stuff like you know fake information out there and, and just trying to get down to the brass tack so how do you guys uh, address things about fear uh, that you know has always been, been created over the last couple generations with the war on drugs like how do you guys address that notion with with your talk and when you're explaining it to people yeah that's actually a very crucial question and um you know for the longest time up until recently i would be showing during my talks i would be showing uh, images of mdma with holes in your brain um fraud, fraudulent images but i would be showing the on oprah then i would be explaining how they were graphically manipulated and how they're fake and i would show a lot of anti-drug advertisements but over time i've come to realize that some of that really just um doesn't completely um reduce people's fears because then they see these images and even if you can explain how they're fake they still stick in their head right. so i've had to kind of um now that we've been able to do research looking at benefits as well as risks what we found is that um in our culture um media will report on the latest scientific advances that's happening all the time every day you look in your paper there's going to be something about scientists say this scientists say that 
So what we've found is by doing scientific research and accurately and honestly reporting on the risks and the benefits, we get an enormous amount of earned media that then gets um, to become a counter-narrative to people who are um, otherwise you know, only exposed to the propaganda messages. The other thing is that it's very crucial that we don't say that there are no risks for MDMA or that there are no risks for floating or that because what's happened in the 60s is that the sort of opponents uh, who r ran the drug war and uh, Nixon and the rest, they denied all the benefits and they exaggerated the risks. Hmm. And in response, some of the advocates exaggerated the benefits and denied the risks. Hmm. And that's not so good either. So what we need to do is to say there are risks to everything. I mean, you can drink too much water and die. You can drown in um, your bathtub. You, can, you, can, you can't really drown in a float tank because it's so salty. That's right. Uh, but, you know, but there are risks. So, it's, yeah. it's, so to build credibility, what we try to do is just say the risks are manageable. There's a little bit of an increase in blood pressure. There's a little bit of an increase in temperature. If you do this in a controlled circumstance and you're not dancing and overheating and you're drinking uh, fruit juices with electrolytes, that it's not going to be a problem. And there's no evidence of neurotoxicity. And then we show our charts of studying people's uh, neurocognitive performance before and after MDMA. So we, we will acknowledge what the risks are, say that they're um, adequately controlled in a clinical setting, and then talk about the corresponding benefits. Because people know whenever you hear these advertisements on TV about drugs, every drug that's been approved has a list of side effects. Right. So we don't need to fall into the trap of saying that there are no risks. But what we need to do is say there are certain environments, certain contexts where the risks are vastly outweighed by the benefits. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to prove. And then by extension, we can say that in, in the, the larger world, the biggest risks to people are the criminalization itself yes. because that produces impure drugs. I mean, it's been a tragedy, but in the Vancouver area, not so much recently, but years ago, there's a drug called PMMA that's sort of like MDMA, but okay. um, has greater effects on temperature escalation. More people die. They don't get the feelings from MDMA that they wanted, so they take higher doses of it. Hmm. So there are deaths from adulterated drugs. Then there's also the stigma that's created so that people don't want to seek treatment if they feel that they need it for drug addiction, drug dependence, because now they're also labeled a criminal. And so the prohibition uh, and actually getting a criminal record, that's worse for your health than anything right. and for your future income and jobs. So basically, we just try to help people to... Um, validate their fears. So in a sense, we say, yes, if you take MDMA or you take LSD and you're not prepared for it, if you're just looking for fun and you only are going to look at happy emotions and if your plan is to suppress anything troublesome, you could end up worse off. That right. it's not the drug itself that's the treatment. So we make a very big point of saying it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and it's the combination of the drug in a therapeutic context that's really healing, and that requires preparation and integration. Totally. So in contrast to kind of recreational drug use where you're just trying to have a fun for the short run, uh, but you're not trying to improve your state afterwards. Right. So what we're trying to do is say that 
you will have an experience under MMDMA that, um, you know, some of our patients say, I don't even know why they call this ecstasy because they're processing fear, they're right. processing terror, they're shaking, they're letting, they're sort of, we find under MDMA that people's memory is enhanced for the trauma. Right. That people have had the trauma, they've suppressed a lot of it, they don't even remember a lot of what happening because it's, of what happened, because it's so painful. Right. So people's memories are increased for the trauma, but they're able to process it. Mm -hmm. And so what we're saying to people is that, that there is this essential part of preparation and then integration so that your daily life without MDMA is improved. And people are surprised when they hear that we only give MDMA three times right. in a three and a half month process. It's not like a daily drug. And at the end of it, we're not like a for-profit pharmaceutical company saying, oh no, you're gonna need MDMA now every month for the rest of your life. Yeah. Or every day for the rest of your life, like SSRIs, Zoloft and Paxil for PTSD. So in a way, these are anti-drug drugs yeah. to try to make it so people's ability to be healthy functioning is enhanced without the drug. We only want to give it to enhance psychotherapy a few times, and for most people, that will be sufficient to get them over the trauma. Absolutely, yeah. I think that, you know, to comment on that, that person that says, I can't believe they call this ecstasy, um, yeah. You know, the, the, the over umbrella of the term actually was psychedelic, mind manifesting yes. or soul manifesting. And so yeah. obviously if you have that stuff underneath or deep inside somewhere, well, it, these, these um, substances and these medicines and these plants can bring them out. Like there, it, it becomes that boundary between the conscious and the subconscious just starts to be dissolved and whatever is there will, will come into your awareness. And that's why... Yeah, whether it's in a therapeutical, therapeutic context or, say, a ceremonial ritual kind of context that's facilitated by a leader. Um, you know, you see ayahuasca, um, shamanism becoming extremely popular worldwide. And, um, you know, then that's a whole other ball of wax to kind of dive into. But you're seeing for them, you know, a good practitioner of ayahuasca is going to have... Uh, you know, preparation, they're going to have a ceremony, yeah. a safe space, and they're going to have integration and, you know, kind of replicate a therapeutic-like environment so that way it is safe to have these experiences and to, you know, maybe you'll have ecstatic joy and love and bliss, but maybe not. And so being prepared for that on both accounts is, is critical to, to, to work with these things within our, our, our culture and our civilization. Um, yeah, so much so. Um, th there's just been a documentary made about our Israeli MDMA study, cool. and it focused on three patients. And one of the patients was um, a young Israeli. After they serve in the army, they go travel around the world to de-stress. Yeah. And this was a woman who went down to Peru, actually, but then was kidnapped. Yeah. And so, and it totally threw her off, and really, this was now um, five or six years um, after that happened. And so, when you look at the videotapes of her sessions... There's nothing ecstatic about it. She's reliving the trauma, um, but that helped her release it. So you never really know what the people need to do. And this is really a crucial part of our method, which is that the therapists are not the ones that are really doing the healing. They're not the ones that really even know what the patient needs to do. It's the patient's unconscious that's the guide. Yes. And so we would, ne we would never call um, the therapist guides. 
that the, they're sort of supporting an emerging process that is coming from the psyche of the patient. And sometimes they'll go to happy memories to build strength to go to the painful memories. Sometimes the pain is so close to the surface, it just comes out and maybe they'll get you know happy memories later. But there's no one trajectory for everybody. And we just sort of follow and believe that there's some kind of innate healing mechanism in the psyche that MDMA helps bring to the surface and other psychedelics would as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we support that process. So, so there is a little bit of a distinction in some forms of shamanism, um, even in some forms of medicine, where it's the, the shaman or the doctor does it to you, like surgery. You're not really healing yourself. But our approach is with the psyche that we are helping the patient heal themselves. So the power dynamics are very important as well. And that if people feel that they're choosing to go into this pain and that they're choosing um, to release it, then they are empowered. And then even when other stressors happen after the study is over, they've learned a way to process it. Mm -hmm. So people are really healing themselves. And we try to support that and stay out of the way while this is happening. That yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, I've been listening to a clinical psychologist, Dr. Jordan Peterson, lately quite a bit. He's I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Um, he's been out on the internet. He kind of exploded online. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast twice within oh, the last six months, and um, and he kind of addresses this in a similar way of like, and when someone voluntarily approaches a fear or something like that, that's such a like a huge part of like whether it's going to be handled properly or, or, you know, or, you know, be able to be managed by that person because they're acknowledging and going into it versus like it happening to them, you know? Exactly. And so I definitely think there's a mechanism there that, you know, do you know if there's any kind of studying on this kind of stuff at all? Self-healing mechanisms? Um, There is. Um, I'm not sure. Well, just, just to give you an example, one of the things that we think is very, very important is that when we actually um, are ready for the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session, we put the pill um, in a little bit of a bowl, and then we we put the bowl down. And so people have to themselves choose to pick up the pill and take it. So we don't actually put it in their hand. We We don't put it in their mouth. We don't inject it in them, anything. They have to be, at that moment, they have to decide, yes, I'm willing to do that. Right, and that is a very empowering. Totally, yeah, that's huge. That's really, really cool. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, one other, I mean, there's a couple of things I want to go into before I let you go. Um, one of them is kind of rolling along with this the healing mechanism. I want to talk about quickly whatever you can share about what your view is or perspectives are of the healing mechanism of a mystical experience. Um, I personally have been very fortunate to be able to, to have drink in ayahuasca in my life. I've, I've participated in quite a few ceremonies now. Well, I mean, relative to who, I don't know, but, um, <laughs> more than, more than 10, right? So, um, yeah. and I, I believe that I have experienced a mystical experience and I can remember when I was in it, the profundity of how healthy it felt to, to have yeah. that happen to me. Like, I'm like, this is inc- like. My analogy is like basically I had a, a heart opening experience, connection with love and the oneness of the universe through the heart of love. Like that's what it felt like. But like, you know, I mean, that's can't even describe it. But um, I analogize it to 
like someone's dying of thirst and given a straw of water. And I was just sucking in that love. Like it was the water that of this dying thirst person. Um, can you talk to that at all? This healing mechanism of a mystical experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I'm very glad you asked that question because, um, when you look at the research that was done in the fifties and sixties with LSD and psilocybin for, cancer patients who are scared of dying, for alcoholics, for heroin addicts, the most reliable finding was that the depth of the mystical experience was correlated with therapeutic outcomes. Hmm. If you look at the recent research that's been done with psilocybin for nicotine addiction, for alcoholism, and also for anxiety related to cancer, that finding is holding up. So the depth of the mystical experience, the sense of connection, um, is linked to therapeutic outcomes. Hmm. But with MDMA, we do not find that. Interesting. So okay. that's a key distinction. So we use the same measures to um, evaluate the depth of the mystical experience. And surprisingly, even under MDMA, there are many people that have a complete mystical experience, according to these questionnaires and according to what they describe. Um, the most mystical experience I've ever had of my life was under um, MDMA, similar to what you just described, sort of being in touch with sort of the love woven through the universe. Um, but what we find is that there is no correlation between the mystical experience and therapeutic outcome when it comes to treating PTSD. And one of the things that we discovered in our study with veterans, firefighters, and police officers, where we were testing three different doses, 30 milligrams, 75 milligrams, and 125. And each of these would have um, half the initial dose after two hours, more or less. So what we discovered, to our surprise, was that the 75 milligram dose group did fantastic and even did slightly better than the 125. Hmm. And so... The more we started looking at fear extinction and memory reconsolidation, the more we started understanding that when you're overcoming trauma that happened to you in your biography, in your life, that sort of rewriting that memory, you have to be grounded in your biography, grounded in your ego, grounded in your sense of what happened to you as an individual, not in this beyond ego state. Okay. So that when you recall an incident that was traumatic from a position of, of peace and seeing it in the past, and then you reconsolidate that memory, that's what helps you in the future not to react so much and not to have PTSD. And that takes place when you're grounded in your biography. So that helps us to try to understand a little bit why the mystical experience is not correlated with outcome. Now, you can have other benefits from the mystical experience, but in terms of reducing PTSD, it doesn't seem to matter. It's, a se it's on a sort of separate track. Wow, really interesting. That's fascinating yeah. stuff, for sure. Um, yeah, which also, though, um, helps in a way justify our non-directive approach. Because in the work with um, ayahuasca for depression or ayahuasca for addiction or um, you know, psilocybin or LSD for um, addiction treatment or anxiety-related cancer, there is an agenda, in a sense, which is to try to help people let go to have these mystical experiences mm. because that's been noticed to be one of the main therapeutic mechanisms. Right. But in MDMA, we don't need to have that agenda because there is no 
correlation. Right. And so we have this non-directive approach that just helps people deal with whatever is emerging. Interesting. Yeah, really cool. No, and that's seems like a whole other area that, you know, could be dove into with a lot more research yeah. in the decades yeah. to come, right? Yeah, um, sure. And, and speaking, my last little section here that I want to address, um, speaking of the decades to come, uh, I heard you say this, and, and I've said this many times, whether it's on this podcast or in the conversations I've had, I loved how you described it, is that if all this goes well, your vision, and it all works out in terms of MDMA becoming used, and then the medicalization, eventually the, the legalization and the adoption within our culture, we're talking 10, 20, 25 years or so, whatever that right. is, right? Yeah. You described the sh what you believe, and I completely agree, is the shift between a society of fundamentalism into mysticism. Yeah. yeah. And maybe for people out there, can you kind of just talk a little bit about that and what you meant by that? Yeah. Um, well, what we're talking about is both uh, talking about through medicalization, but then broader ending prohibition so that more people can have these experiences. Um, you know, in America, we talk about, um, you know, all the terrible things that Trump is doing. But it's not really Trump. It's really the millions and millions of people that are supporting him as well. You know, and, and not all of them are racists. You know, they're hoping for some sort of change. But they're willing to overlook um, all sorts of demonization of the other and fear of uh, refugees. So we're, we're so proud of what Canada is doing in terms of Syrian refugees, letting some of them into Canada. And so what I think will happen is that right now we have globalization that's happening more than ever before. And you used to be able to have different cultures relatively um, unique in their um, in the people that grow up in them, not bumping up against a lot of other cultures or a lot of other religions. So you could have this religion saying, you know, we're the only right way. And this other religion says we're the only right way. But now under globalization, things are um, more jumbled up together. And it's harder for people to sustain that my religion is the one right way. So I think in a reaction against this globalization and against science, there's a retreat to fundamentalism. People, in some ways, are holding on ever tighter to this is the book. This is what it said. This is the only right way. And they're scared to let go of that because if they let go of their belief that, um, you know, Virgin Mary was a virgin or that Jesus performed all these miracles or that, uh, you know, Muhammad flew to heaven, you know, on his horse Mubarak from Jerusalem, you know, that, that if they let go of these miracle stories, they'll be left with nothing. And so I think there's this fear among fundamentalists that they have to ever hold on more rigidly. But if they were to just let go of that and realize the, the sort of mystical core that, um, you know, it's not just that Jesus is the son of God, it's everybody is the son of God, that we're all, or the daughters of God, that, that it's not even, you know, male, female like that, that we're all part of this spirituality. And earlier you talked about an experience that you had of love, but it was difficult to put into words. And so one of the key elements of the mystical experience is called ineffability, meaning you can't really, it goes beyond language, beyond words. So all of our religious systems are word-based, story-based, and they're somehow less than the full truth. And so to get overly concerned about the words and the symbols is where fundamentalists get tripped up. But if we can somehow help people have 
these deeper beyond word experiences, then when they come back, they see that the religions are ways to try to express it in different cultural contexts, that the words and the symbols are very similar in themes to words and symbols from other religions, mm -hmm. and that we'll have people coming from a more mystical place, and they'll therefore be more tolerant of people who are on the surface different with different religions. So what we're saying is that um, mysticism is the antidote to fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And if we can help people have these mystical experiences, they'll realize that we're part of nature. And so we're not going to be so cavalier like, oh, we're going to trash the planet or there's no such thing as global warming or, you know, and also people will be able to appreciate differences rather than be fearful of them. So that's why in addition to maps focusing on medical use, we're also speaking out about the need to go beyond so that many millions and billions of people could have these kind of deeper experiences. Now, never, not everybody's going to want to do them and not everybody should do them, only those that are called for it. But I do feel like um, the future survival of humanity is based upon as many people as possible moving from fundamentalism to mysticism. No, I agree. And I think not that it's the only way, um, but man, for some people that maybe are kind of blocked up or locked up in different ways, even if they believe they're spiritual, uh, but they're, they're identifying it through a religion that's all word-based, let's say, and not experientially based, then, um, yeah. you know, having a legit psychedelic experience, a ceremony, whatever that is, whatever that process looks like, um, can really, you know, create paradigm shifting experiences and that's kind of full circle of why i believe you know there may be a statue of you <laughs> somewhere someday because well, of this incredible 30 year journey you've been on yeah. with maps i mean man i i mean i don't know if i'll ever get a chance to talk to you again in person like this but it's incredible well, it's incredible you will be i'll be up in vancouver at some point but um but you are reminding me of, uh, it's not quite exactly parallel here, but it's a poem, a short poem by E. Cummings. Okay. Um, it's a, um, a beautiful woman who naked is, is worth a million statues. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I, I, I just, it's incredible. It's humbling. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. Um, yeah. you're, you're just a delight. You're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, thank you for doing this podcast. Thank my, you for doing all the, all the podcasts that you do. Um, like they're, yeah. they're, I know they can be you know, draining your time sometimes, but you know what? It, the amount of times they get re-listened to, it's so worth it. Yeah, so. yeah no, totally. I, I appreciate that. And I, I really do think that this public education is the key element. And that's why... I was so willing to do this podcast with you because, you know, we will have a site in Vancouver and cool. more importantly, we want people to understand that we are trying to do healing work. It's not going to throw culture upside down, but it will be um, part of an overall healing process. Yep. And it's, it's the evolution that, I mean, of course, we're going to keep evolving as people, as a yeah. culture together, you know, like it doesn't just stop. It never has and it never will. And, you know, this is, this is... Yeah in my opinion, the right side of history. And I'm so, so happy to have this opportunity and to be on it with you. So 
Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Appreciate Thank it. You. And um, everyone listening, thanks for joining us today. Um, leave us a review if you feel, or give us a like or a share. Just help spread this word, this knowledge, this uh, education. And until next time, to whatever is. Okay.